Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are doing a 12-part series on the entire book, 28 chapters in all, and we have now come to part 8 in that 12-part series. As always, and very importantly, I want to announce tonight uh, some new information moving forward. Uh, Our website and broadcast name have changed, although the old website address will still direct you uh, to the right place. Uh, In the past, it was new-life-ministries.org. The new address online is New Life Church, that's all one word, New Life Church-MD.org. And again, either one will get you to the right place. More importantly, for those that do follow live online, our broadcast name has changed from New Life Ministries to New Life Church. So that's one uh, word, no spaces, New Life Church is the broadcast name if you are following on MixLR.com. And again, all of the notes, all of the previous recordings are available at our website, and they are also stored online there at MixLR.com once you log into the uh, New Life Church broadcast. Okay, here we go. Hopefully, uh, tonight we are going to finish up this section that we've been doing for several weeks now, and that will enable us, starting next week, to keep moving further along into the book of Acts. But we've been taking quite a bit of time to look more carefully at one verse of Scripture that we came across toward the end of chapter 13 in the book of Acts. And namely, it's Acts 13, verse 48, which reads, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, we've done quite a bit already on this. I'm not going to review all of that. Just simply that in the context, Paul and Barnabas had preached in the synagogue, as was always their custom, the first take the gospel to the Jews. A few received the message well, but most of them opposed Paul and stirred up trouble. Paul and Barnabas finally left the synagogue, shook the dust off their feet, just as Jesus had instructed his disciples to do, and said, okay, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. From here on, we turn to the Gentiles with the word of God. And when the Gentiles heard that, we just read, they were very glad And they honored the word of the Lord. And that's when this phrase is inserted by Luke the writer, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, I believe every word of God is important, and whether or not it fits in with our theology is really not the point. We need to get our theology to fit in with the word of God. And... This one little phrase has raised many questions, and we've tried to address some of those, and we're going to continue and hopefully draw this 
to a conclusion tonight. Luke could have written this any number of ways. He could have said, and all those who believed received eternal life. But that's not what it says. That I think a lot of people would be more comfortable with. But instead he says, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And it's in a particular order here where their believing is the consequence of something that previously occurred. They were already appointed or disposed toward eternal life. And obviously, uh, most would understand that it is implied that somehow God had disposed, inclined, appointed them to eternal life. Because of that appointing, they received the word of God and they believed. And we looked a lot into the meaning of that word appointed. It always comes from an outside source or influence. In this case, clearly, uh, I think, God, God's grace, God's power, God's spirit, somehow God worked to dispose them toward believing, toward eternal life. The Jews, on the other hand, and I think this is very important, that it's just several verses apart from them rejecting the word of God and judging themselves unworthy of the same thing, eternal life. So we have the Jews judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. They reject the word of God. The Gentiles have been appointed unto eternal life, and they believe. And, of course, this has been an age-old debate between two extremes and any number of uh, points of view in between. The one extreme being that of the ultra- or hyper-Calvinists that, from the beginning, God foreordained the elect, those who were to be saved. We can't add to it. We can't subtract from it. They're the ones. God chose them. That's the end of the story. The other extreme, the Armenian view, is, no, 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 no. It's all about man's choice. Whoever believes will be saved. Whoever repents and receives Christ will be saved. Well, both points by themselves seem rather convincing, but you don't have to read very far into the Bible to realize if you take one view at the expense of the other view, you're in serious trouble. Because there are many, many scriptures that support both views. And so, my purpose in looking at this in quite a bit of depth is not to say, here's the right position, that position's wrong. Rather, it's to try to get as broad a sense from the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about all of this? And then we try to, by the Holy Spirit's help, arrive at a position where we're comfortable with every scripture in the Bible, whether they are the ones that talk about God's uh, election, his predestination, his foreordaining, or scriptures about man's accountability, the need for man to believe, the need for man to repent, 
and to receive Christ into his own life. And I've been telling you from the start on this particular discussion, I'm somewhere in between where I believe both points of view are correct. And that might sound strange, but this is an aspect of what we saw in Ephesians 1 is the mystery of God's will. We're not going to understand it all, my folks. The great Apostle Paul even admitted in his letter to the Corinthians, we know in part. God's ways, God's thoughts are beyond our comprehension. They're past finding out. So you can search and investigate and try to figure this thing out. It's beyond you and me. The best we can hope to do is to come to love and embrace all of the scriptures and then hope that the Holy Spirit gives us revelation. Remember, mysteries in the Bible are not figured out. They are revealed. And we must pray, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that they would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, to know the mystery of his will, to know Christ better. And that's a good prayer for all of us to be praying. Now, I want to continue right along from where we left off last time. Again, if you haven't been with us, you really need to go back and look at the notes and listen to the previous recordings uh, so that you can get the whole picture. But we are now on page 146 in the notes, and this is point number 13 that begins with the words, Jesus and the Apostles make frequent references. And we're still very heavily looking at the view of election, that God has somehow predisposed certain people to believe, to obtain salvation. Now, fasten your seatbelt, because we're not done yet. We're going to swing all the way to the other end of the spectrum tonight and look at all of the scriptures that talk about man's responsibility, man's accountability, what man must do in his response to God. But, point 13, I'm going to read it. Jesus and the apostles make frequent references to God's elect, or chosen. Those are two words that are often found in the New Testament. <clears throat> Excuse me. Depending on your translation, it may use elect or chosen. It's most likely the same Greek word, and we'll talk about that word momentarily. God's elect, God's chosen. In every case, it's either clear or directly implied that God is the one who did the choosing. God is the one who elected them. And regardless of our difficulty in understanding some of these concepts, and I'll admit, they're, they're difficult, if not impossible, for our human minds to comprehend, but let me insert here again, Isaiah 55, God says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, <clears throat> your ways are not my ways, mine are not just a little bit higher than yours, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's the, the gap between God's thoughts and ours. 
God's ways and ours. And so we're not going to be able to bridge that gap with human intellect. I don't care how many books you read, how many wise men you talk to, uh, there's an unbridgeable gap between us and God. The only, only, only bridge is when God chooses to reveal little bits and pieces to us. So, regardless of the difficulty in understanding these concepts, particularly this one of divine election, we simply cannot ignore or dismiss so many scriptures in the New Testament. And I've deliberately listed quite a few here to show you that this is not some strange verse I picked out of the corner of the Bible somewhere. This is found regularly throughout the New Testament. And that's why I say we simply cannot ignore them. Admittedly, we may not understand them, but we can't just erase them and pretend like they don't exist. Um, you may have heard me talk in the past about Benjamin Franklin, great statesman here in the United States. Well, it's questionable whether or not he was really a believer. A lot of the founding fathers were devout Christians. Um, he was a, a moral man. He was a wise man. And he did read the Bible, and he often uh, makes reference to the Bible. But apparently, he had a copy of the Bible, and whenever he came across a portion of Scripture that he didn't like, or he didn't understand, he would take out a penknife and cut that little piece of the Scriptures out of his Bible. <laughs> and so, in the end, he had kind of a Swiss cheese-looking Bible where a lot of sections were missing, all of the sections that he couldn't understand, or the, script, the Scriptures that he didn't particularly like. Well, that's not a very wise approach to understanding the scriptures. You might want to put a little note next to one if you don't understand it. You can even put a question mark or an exclamation point next to the ones that you don't like. But I wouldn't recommend cutting them out because they're there for a reason. Now, let's look at a number of scriptures where we find this word elect or chosen. And very often, it specifically calls these people God's elect, or the chosen of God. The Greek word in every single case is the same. It's eklektos, which means to select, to choose, and by implication, it's the favorite. You often choose your favorite thing. That's implied in this word, to select, to choose, maybe a favorite, or it can also mean chosen or elect. Alright, here we go. Mark 13, the word is used several times, verse 20, verse 22, <clears throat> and again in verse 27. Jesus is speaking here, in verse 20 he says, If the Lord had not cut short those days, referring to the last days, I believe he's talking about the days of the tribulation, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, 
he has shortened them. Verse 22, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. Verse 27, And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So, this is a concept and an actual word that Jesus himself often used to refer to a specific group of people whom he called the elect. And he's very clear in verse 20, whom God, the Father, has chosen. God's elect. But for the sake of the elect, God's elect, those days would be shortened. And when he sends out his angels, who's he going to gather? His elect from the four winds, uh, from the four ends of the earth. Okay, Matthew 22 and verse 14. We find the same word, here it's translated chosen in the NIV. You'll recognize the verse when I read it. For many are called or invited, but few are chosen. Many are called, few are elected, few are chosen. Luke 18 and verse 7. I believe again it's a, it's a reference to the last days. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Same word in King James translated elect. Bring about justice for his elect. Here again, these have been elected by God. Those who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? John 15 and verse 16. Jesus speaking to his apostles, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Same word, eclectos. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Very clearly there, Jesus indicates the order. You didn't choose me first. I had already chosen you. I chose you before you chose me. I'm the one that initiated all of this. Romans 8 Verse 33, Who will bring any charge, Paul asks, against those whom God has chosen? Same word, King James translates it, God's elect. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Isn't it interesting how often this term is used in the New Testament to refer to God's people? Well, why doesn't he call them the people who chose God, or the people who decided to be believers. The emphasis over and over is on God doing the electing. Okay? Stay with me. Colossians 3.12. I'm reading here from the New King James. It says, therefore, as the elect of God, the chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. 
We don't often speak like this in our churches today, and I think it's a bit sad. We might be missing an important theological and doctrinal point. They used it often in the early church. They referred to the members of the church as the elect of God, God's elect. That's why you're here in church today, brother or sister. You've been elected by God. That's the intent in these verses. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Notice here, Paul chose his words very carefully. He could have said, Oh, I endure all these troubles and persecutions for the sake of the church, or for the sake of the brethren, for the sake of the believers. All those would have been true and correct, but notice his emphasis. What I'm going through, I'm doing it for the sake of the elect. They seem to have a very clear revelation on this, that those who were in the church had been elected by God. And therefore, their whole ministry was directed toward the elect. Titus 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, so far we've seen both Jesus and Paul the Apostle, using this frequently, maybe this was just a peculiarity that Jesus and Paul had. No, we find it elsewhere. First Peter 1, this is probably one of the most compelling, and the one that even takes us a little deeper into the understanding of this word elect. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I'm also reading from the New King James here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace be multiplied. And, you may remember, in the very next verse, verse 3, is where Peter gives thanks to God for his great mercy. Why? Because he has given us new birth. It seems to fit perfectly with the statement here in verse 2. Who is Peter writing to? The elect, who elected them, God, on what basis, he tells us, according to foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, knowledge ahead of time. Do I understand that? Not really. Can our human brains comprehend the concept of foreknowledge? Maybe a little bit, but not really because it's part of the mystery of God. God knew things ahead of time. 
and based on foreknowledge, he knows the end from the beginning, based on what he knew and knows, he made choices, he made selections, he made elections. And therefore, Peter, like Paul, understands the members of the church to whom he is writing and ministering, he calls them the elect of God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. One last verse in this regard. Revelation 17 verse 14 says, They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details surrounding this scripture, but the main point is there's a group here with Jesus. Who are they? Well, they're the called, the chosen, and the faithful followers. Same word, chosen or elect. Some of the Bibles translate it. With him <clears throat> will be his elect. That's who's going to be with Christ. His called, his elect, and his faithful followers. This begins to lead us into the next part of our discussion now. They weren't just, you know, inanimate objects that didn't have anything to do with their salvation. They responded to the call, and they were faithful. They were faithful. God did his part in electing them, but they were faithful in working out that salvation. They were faithful in following him. Now, starting with the next point, point 14, we're going to shift gears. We're going 180 degrees in the other direction, and we're now going to look at all of the scriptures that have to do with man's responsibility. We've been pretty much one-sided up until this point, looking at all of the scriptures, and there are many. <clears throat> there are many scriptures in the Old Testament and the New on this concept. You can't avoid them. God elects. God has foreknowledge. God makes plans long before people have even been born. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New. But, now let's look at the other scriptures that are often ignored by the so-called Calvinist camp, and I think that's a huge error, because these are truths that we must also incorporate into our theology, our understanding of who God is and how God works. So, point number 14 starts with the word, however. However, in light of all that we've discussed up until now, the Bible teaches with equal emphasis, equal emphasis, that man is a free moral agent, and that if he will accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he will be saved. 
Every man, woman, and child must give an account before God. And according to Revelation 20, all will be judged according to what they have done. Not, and I want to emphasize this, they will not be judged according to what God had done. Judgment is based solely and completely on what they did. In other words, there will be no one standing before the throne of God at judgment and saying, but Lord, you didn't elect me. That's why I never became a Christian. That, that's foreign to the whole concept that we're discussing here. Judgment is based on what each individual does. That's why, with equal emphasis, we must look at all of the scriptures that talk about our response, and we get the word responsibility from that word response. Remember, what separated the Jews from the Gentiles in this encounter in the synagogue was how they responded to the word of God. The Jews rejected the word. The apostles therefore said, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. The Gentiles, they gladly received the word of God and they were given eternal life. Let me emphasize this again because it is so critically important. Man must give an account to God, and the account is not what my mother did, not what my husband did, not even what God did. It's what I did. It's 100% based on my choices, my decisions, my actions. Now, I understand some people have had a rough life. They've been abused. They've been mistreated. Other people have done them wrong. Da 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 da. But you know what? At the judgment, none of that matters. You and I will give an account for our own choices, what we believed, what we did, and what we didn't do. All will be judged according to what they have done, not according to their so-called election. God would be unjust if he were to blame someone for not believing in Jesus Christ and ending up in eternal damnation because it was his fault for not electing them. That's crazy. That is very bad theology. And it's not even uh, according to what we see in the scriptures. God is absolutely just. He is absolutely righteous. He's fair in all of his judgments. He would never do anything cruel like that, where on one hand, according to his election, John Smith can't believe. He can't go to heaven. He has no chance of ever being saved. And then, at the judgment, God makes John Smith say, well, give an account for your life, and John Smith says, I couldn't believe you didn't elect me. No, not going to be like that. 
judgment will be based entirely on what John Smith chose or didn't choose to do or to believe in his own life. Divine election, which I believe we've seen clearly in all the scriptures that we've read previously, divine election and human responsibility are both true. They're both scriptural truths. Neither can be disregarded. Neither can be overemphasized at the expense of the other. And that's why, as I say, I think these are two co-equal, parallel truths. We may not understand how that can possibly be, but we have to accept the scriptures because that's what they present for us. Divine election right alongside human responsibility. And I've debated this topic quite a bit over the years with different individuals, some who have been very extreme in one uh, regard, others who have been extreme in the other. And what is sad is to see where you can kind of paint yourself into a corner where you pretend all those opposing scriptures aren't there. That's very dangerous. I don't ever want to come to that place where I'm afraid that some verse of scripture in the Bible is going to mess up my doctrinal position or my theology. If it's in the Bible, I better find out why it's there and what it means to me, and maybe I need to change my theology so that it is included. And having wrestled with this for years and years now, I have come to a very comfortable position where I can argue either side, not that there's one side against the other, but I can argue for divine election, I can argue for human responsibility, and then I can sum it all up and say both are equally true. While there may seem to be a conflict between the two, there doesn't need to be, and if there is a conflict, understand it exists only in our human mind, not in God's mind. God is not confused about this, and he's a lot bigger than we are, and he understands how it all fits together. Foreknowledge, election, predestination, these are all biblical terms, and human accountability, human responsibility, and human judgment. Judgment is always based on what the individual did. Nothing more, nothing less. Judgment is based on what that person did in their life. And I'm going to read what I've written here in point 16, because I think this really uh, sums it up quite powerfully. Men are damned by their own choice and not by any act of God. In other words, don't blame God. Well, I didn't become a Christian because he didn't elect me. That's foolishness. Men who go to hell, women who go to hell, people who are damned are damned by their own choice, period. They are responsible, and not by any act of God. Those who go to hell 
like the Jews in Pisidian Antioch, they have disqualified themselves. Notice, right there in Acts 13, the apostles put the blame right back on the Jews. You did this to yourselves. You've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Note what they didn't say to them. Well, you guys can't believe because God didn't elect you. No, that's poor theology. You've disqualified yourselves. How? You rejected the Word of God. Why did you reject the Word of God? Well, apparently, you made a choice or a decision in your own heart to reject God and His Word, and thus you disqualified yourselves. Those who never became believers there and ended up in the fires of hell, they have one person to blame, themselves. They disqualified themselves. Or, again, as it reads in Acts 13.46, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. It's no coincidence, and I want to go back and read this all so you can get the context again. It's no coincidence that you find these two groups side by side in these three verses. Acts 13, I'm going to read from verse 46 to 48 again, and I want you to notice the Jews right alongside the Gentiles and the two different responses, the two different outcomes. Acts 13 from verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them, that's the Jews in the synagogue who were treating them badly. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, pause, notice they didn't say, well, since God didn't elect you, we're going to move on. No. They were responsible for what they just did. They rejected the Word of God. And there are consequences when any human being rejects the Word of God. Since you reject the Word of God and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, again, this is something they did to themselves. Don't blame God for it. You do not consider yourselves worthy of God. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Well, we can look at this several ways now. One group rejected the Word of God. The other group honored the Word of God. One group judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. The other group had been appointed to eternal life, and that's why they believed. I think you begin to see the problem if you take one or the other extreme here, because in these three verses, you see both parts of the equation. You see God appointing them, and you see man's responsibility, and the consequences 
of the choices he makes. We have to live with the consequences of our own choices, our own decisions. In the end, we have no one else to blame except for ourselves. The Jews here had judged, decreed, ordained, and damned themselves. Those are all words, by the way, that are included with the Greek word that the apostles used there. Uh, You've judged or considered yourselves to be unworthy. They actually passed judgment on themselves. The word is used elsewhere in the scriptures to refer to decreeing, ordaining, and even damning someone. So they damned themselves by their rejection of the word of God. This clearly emphasizes the second position, the importance of human responsibility, human choice, and the eternal consequences that follow. They rejected the word of God, they disqualified themselves, they brought this on themselves. No outside influence is implicated. The Gentiles honored the word of God, they believed God, because God had appointed, decreed, these unworthy Gentiles to inherit eternal life. And they gladly responded to the word of God, and they believed. Now, I know this is hard for us to wrap our little minds around, and I know some of the questions and some of the difficulties that people have with this, because they've often come up over the years when I've taught on this subject. Let me just read to you what I've written in the notes, uh, Some might not have these notes in front of you, otherwise you can read along with me. Point number 18. If all mankind received its just due, in other words, if every human being got what they deserve, then all would be lost. This might sound a little bit, well, yeah, of course, but this has to be the foundation of, of our whole theology on this point. We think we deserve something good from God. No. All mankind deserves hellfire. Okay? That is our starting point. All mankind deserves death, deserves destruction, deserves damnation. So, if we want to talk about what people deserve, let's get this real straight and clear. If all mankind received its just due, then all would be lost. But, God in His grace and mercy, hallelujah for the grace of God, thank God He's a merciful God, God in grace stoops down and saves some. He's not going to save all. We know that from the end of the book. Many are going to be cast into the lake of fire, sadly. It's not God's will that they perish. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But God in His grace stoops down and saves some of those unworthy sinners 
who should have also been lost. Does God have a right to do this? Of course he does. God has a right to do whatever he wants. But he operates according to his own laws, principles, and most of all, according to his own character. God is righteous. God is good. God is love. And so, God has a right to do what he wants. And so, if he had chosen from before the beginning of time that he was only going to save one person and send all the rest to hell, he's absolutely righteous and just in doing that. That's his decision. The doctrine of sovereign election is a teaching that gives God his proper place as the ruler of the universe, the sovereign God, who can do as he chooses, and who will never choose to do anything unrighteous or unkind. Let me repeat that, because this is where many go astray when they start arguing and fussing about this truth. God, he's either God or he isn't. If he's God, then he's sovereign he has all authority, all power in heaven and on earth. He's the ruler of the universe. He can do whatever he pleases. That's what the Bible says. He can choose whatever he wants. So, if you, if you know that much about God, that he's sovereign, he has all power, and he can make his own choices, this next part is critical. He will never choose to do anything that violates his own character. He's righteous. He's kind. He's good. And he's love. He will never choose to do anything unrighteous or unkind. And that's one of the, one of the accusations that often arises against God when these scriptures are examined. Well, that's not fair. That's not right. Well, listen to what you just said. You're accusing God of being unfair, unjust, unrighteous. God forbid. It can't be. God is perfect. He doesn't make any mistakes. He is the rock, and His work is perfect. Just and right is He. The Scriptures teach us. Many of our difficulties, particularly with this topic of divine election, predestination, foreknowledge, and all the other things that go along with it, would go away if we were to remember the following, and I'm going to quote, The sovereignty of God is absolute, yet it is never exercised in condemning men who ought to be saved, but rather has resulted in the salvation of men who deserved to be lost. Notice, we, we need to get this straightened out in our minds. We often start off with the premise, that's not fair, God can't, you know, preordain somebody to go to hell, that's wrong, that's not just, that's not fair. Well, you got it all wrong to start with. First of all, God is sovereign. 
The sovereignty of God is absolute, yet it is never exercised in condemning men who ought to be saved. That's not fair. That's not right. God doesn't do anything unfair. Rather, God has absolute authority and freedom whenever he wants to show grace and mercy on whomever he chooses. He has that prerogative. And so, it says, Sovereignty of God is absolute, yet it is never exercised in condemning men who ought to be saved. Here's where you and I come in, but rather, it has resulted in the salvation of men and women who deserved to be lost. That's what we deserved. Paul expounds on this in what I will admit is a very difficult and challenging passage of Scripture found in Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to read from verse 9, Romans 9, verse 9. For this was how the promise was stated, speaking about Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins, speaking about Jacob and Esau, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad. Alright? He's very clear. Twins were born. They hadn't done anything yet. Hadn't done anything good. Hadn't done anything bad. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. Wow. That's pretty clear. Had nothing to do with what they did. It was in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. That's a very troubling verse. A lot of people would like to cut that, cut that one out with their pen knife, but it's in the Bible, in Malachi. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Alright, pause. When was that decision made by God to prefer... Jacob over Esau. To elect Jacob over Esau, and this is strong, to love Jacob and hate Esau. Why did God do that? Was it because of something bad Esau did? Well, there's some bad things that Esau did in his life, but that's not what Paul says happened here. This decision, this election, was made before they were born. Before they had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. 
Let me tell you something clear tonight. I don't understand all this, but one thing that makes me fear and tremble before the throne of God, God is a God of purpose, and He does things according to His purpose, not according to what we like or understand. And in order that His purpose in election might stand. You might find this doctrine of election offensive. I do. I have trouble with it. But it's in the Bible. And we're going to find in a few seconds here, who are we to argue with God? <laughs> who are we to question the sovereign God's purpose in election? I don't understand why he chose Jacob over Esau. He did. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Well, Paul read your mind. He read my mind. He knew the first accusation, the first criticism was going to be, that's not fair. Yep, he read our minds. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Unjust is the same word, unfair. It seems he is. That's not fair. They didn't even have a chance to prove themselves. And you already had, you know, a black mark on Esau's record. You hated him before he even had a chance to do anything good or bad. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's unjust. God, that's unrighteous. Paul says, hold on. Is that what you're going to say? Is God unjust? Not at all, with an exclamation point in the NIV. Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This brings us back to our point. All deserve to go to hell. God is sovereign. He has all power, all authority. He can do whatever he wants. If he chooses to have mercy on one individual, that's his prerogative. And that's what he told Moses. I can do what I want to do. He doesn't do things whimsically, but he states very clearly, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You're not going to tell me. You're not going to dictate who deserves my mercy and who doesn't. I make that decision, and I have all knowledge, all wisdom, and all power. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Notice again, it gets all the attention off of man and on to God. Specifically, it's about God's mercy. Paul says, why are you criticizing God? If anybody gets saved, if anybody is elected or chosen by God, it's purely on the basis of His mercy, not merit. It does not depend on man's desire or his effort, but on God's mercy. <clears throat> Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now here again, Paul's reading our thoughts. He knows some people are still not satisfied, and they're still going to argue and dispute and criticize and even bring charges against God for being unfair or whatever. And so he says this, verse 19, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? That's an important question. Let me translate it for you. We touched on this a little earlier. In other words, somebody's going to say, Okay, God chose some, some he didn't. The ones he didn't, when they stand before the throne of judgment, and God says, sorry, you're going to hell. Well, why does God still blame me and hold me accountable? That's what blame is about. Why does he hold me accountable if this has nothing to do with my desire or my effort? This is where we get tangled up in the weeds. One of you will say to me, why does God still blame us? Well, this is why you need to take in both of these positions. We are, if you will, to blame. God is merciful, God is good, God is gracious, but we will one day stand before God and have to give an account. And if there's any blame, God will bring it forth at that point. Why does he still blame us? Because he's the judge. For who resists his will? Now Paul is going to help with some quotes from Isaiah to put us back in our place. And I would maintain that whenever you and I start arguing and fussing about these truths, it's probably because of the arrogance of our human hearts and minds. And this will help you. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right, notice that word, right, the potter here, of course, is God. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. By extension, Paul seems to be asking, who are you to be questioning God's wisdom in his election of Jacob and his rejection of Esau? Secondly, who are you to be questioning the fact that God raised up Pharaoh to show his power against him in destroying him, hardening him, and then he has mercy on the Israelites. Who are you to question all that? Well, if he's the potter, he has every right to do whatever he wants with the clay. And as we've already noted repeatedly, guided by his own character. God is all-wise. God is all-knowing. God is love. God is truth. 
God is righteous. God is perfect. God doesn't do anything unfair. So he has every right to do whatever he wants, and he will never violate himself, his own character. Verse 22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath <clears throat> and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. Those last two verses really help tie this whole thing together. Let me go through it carefully. Verse 22 uses the word choosing. It's the same word for election. What if God choosing or in his divine election, what if God elected to show his wrath and make his power known, he bore with patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. I want you to notice the use of the word prepared and the use of the word objects. Two different groups here. Objects of his wrath, they were prepared. Preparation involves something that you do beforehand. The implication is clear. God elected, God chose, he prepared beforehand these objects of his wrath. What are they prepared and chosen for? Destruction. Another group he refers to as objects of mercy. They were also prepared, and he even adds for emphasis, in advance. They were prepared in advance for glory. Who are these objects of mercy? Ah, now Paul puts some names and faces on this. Even us. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the elect. He called them God's elect in the previous chapter, Romans 8. He's still talking to the elect. Who are these objects of mercy? They're not objects of merit. They don't deserve salvation any more than anybody else. They were shown mercy. Why? God explains that earlier. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I make those decisions. You don't. Who are these objects of mercy? Even us whom he also called. Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, let me tie all this up, and we're going to close. And thankfully, we can move forward, starting next time, into Acts chapter 14. God has made it very clear in his word, and we have to believe this, it is never 
his will for anyone to perish. He takes no joy, no delight in the death of the wicked. He takes no joy in sending even one person to hell. It is not his will. It is not his joy or delight for anyone to be eternally damned. Quite the contrary, all the angels celebrate in heaven when one sinner repents. Notice that. It was their act of repentance that brought the joy and celebration into heaven. It's not God's will for anyone to perish. So if anyone perishes, it's their own fault, their own blame. They will have to give an account of that before the throne of God. It is God's will that all, A-L-L, all would come to repentance. I could read many verses. I think these next three will be sufficient. John 3.16 God so loved the elect? No. That's not the word Jesus chose here. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that any of the elect who believe? No. That's not the word he chooses. He's making a totally different point here. God so loved the world and he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. With great certainty, with absolute assurance, I can make this statement. Anyone who repents and believes in Jesus Christ will not perish but will have eternal life. Anyone. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will not perish. How do I know that? John 3.16 Does that contradict all the other verses we read? Absolutely not. Jesus would never contradict anything in his Father's Word. But this is a very important statement. Whoever, God so loved the world, that whoever, and here's the counterpart to that, anyone who is standing before the great white throne judgment, and God says, sorry, you're going to hell, what's the reason? It's not, you were a murderer, you were an adulterer, you were proud, you were arrogant, you were a liar, you were this, that, or the other. We were all that. One simple reason will be given. You never believed in my Son. Depart from me into everlasting fire. Second Peter 3.9 Reading from the New King James Version The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Listen to this. Not willing. We're talking about God's will here. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's very clear. And it goes right along with John 3.16. On God's part, God who is good, love, mercy, grace, kindness, the God who sent His own Son to take our place on the chopping block of Calvary, that God 
does not desire, wish, or will that anyone should perish and go to hell. His desire, his will is for all, A-L-L, to come to repentance. And lastly, 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, reading from the King James. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men, all men to be saved, and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. So God has made it crystal clear in His Word, this is His position, this is His heart, this is His mind. He doesn't want anybody going to hell. He wants all men to be saved, and He's prescribed, very simply, the way of salvation. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven, and you will inherit eternal life. It's that simple. A child can do it. And we have to get this very clear into the depths of our spirit. God is not willing. God is not mean. He's not unjust. He's not a bad guy. God is not willing that any perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He will have, that's His will, He will have all men to be saved and, this is important, to also come into the knowledge of the truth. So, that's a lot to digest. I don't even claim to understand it all myself. And I don't expect you to either. But I would challenge you, go back and look at every single verse that we have studied in this section. And then, take a few steps back and pray. And say, God, help me to put all of this truth together. Because you want me to come to a knowledge of the truth. Some of these things seem to be conflicting. They seem to contradict one another. But I know that in your mind, O God, there is no conflict. And therefore, give me a revelation concerning the mystery of your will. But, as I finish, I, I left it purposely for the last section here. Please read over these last three scriptures over and over and over until you get this deep into your spirit. This is who God is. God loves the world. God doesn't want anybody perishing and going to hell. And I can't prove this, but I can often picture in my mind, it's with tears in his eyes that God assigns those who chose not to believe in his Son to the lake of fire. He does it with no joy. He does it with no delight. He takes no delight in the death, the destruction of the wicked. He wants all to be saved. And that's why he has you and me here on this earth to be ambassadors, to be preachers of the good news, to bring as many others into this great and glorious salvation as possible 
They're there not because of their desire, their efforts, their good works. They're there because of God's mercy. God has every right to save anyone and everyone that he wants to because of his mercy. And he will never violate any of his own laws. He will never violate his own character. God is good, God is righteous, God is fair, and God is true. Let's close for this session in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are the only wise God. Lord, your ways are past finding out. They're unsearchable. We've tried in this study to look at many scriptures that talk about this complex interaction of your wisdom, your election, your foreknowledge, your predestination, your preparation of objects of wrath and objects of mercy in advance. We've tried to reconcile all that with many, many scriptures that talk about your will is for all to be saved, all to come to a knowledge of the truth, for all to come to repentance, for all to be followers of Jesus Christ. Sadly, Lord, we see from the scriptures that will not be the final outcome. There will be many believers, but there will also be many who are assigned to the lake of fire. Help us, O oh God, to understand those of us who are believers, those of us who have come into your glorious salvation, it's only because of your mercy. It's only because of your grace. And now, Lord, let us go forth extending that same grace, that same mercy, that same compassion to those around us who are not yet saved. Father, we pray that in the time remaining, we can see many coming out of darkness into your marvelous light, many coming to repentance, receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on his name, and becoming children of the living God. Father, we thank you and we praise you for each and every one who has been with us in this study tonight. Bless them and bless this word to their hearts. Grant them wisdom, understanding. Give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Reveal to us your heart, your mind. Give us supernatural, divine, spiritual understanding in these truths. And we'll be indebted to you forever and ever for your grace, your kindness, and your mercy toward us. Now, Father, bless us, make us a blessing, keep us, watch over us, make your face to shine upon us, be gracious to us, lift up your countenance upon us, and give each and every one of us your shalom, your peace, 